Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories, learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sam, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for uh, taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, as I had mentioned to you before we hit record here, uh, I came across your story by way of, of one of our listeners uh, in an op-ed piece, uh, which was all about money becoming this addiction. And so I'd love for you to tell us uh, a bit about your story, your journey, and, and how that has led you to uh, where you're at today. And uh, so where do you want me to start? I guess at the very beginning of it, to be honest. Like the beginning of how I got to Wall Street in a yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a good place to start. Okay. So I grew up in Los Angeles um, and, you know, I didn't come from money. We sort of lived in like a, you know, middle-class neighborhood. We were always kind of struggling to make ends meet. My mom was a nurse practitioner and my dad was a kind of guy who had like a thousand ideas about how to make it big. He was like trying to write a script and he would start these businesses. But from the core of my childhood, I just remember his sort of dreams about what it was going to be like when we had a bunch of money. And I even remember that, like, even insofar as like when I was 12, um, I went with him to a coffee shop and somebody asked, like a neighbor came up and asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I just said, rich, you know? And my dad like smiled at that, you know, like that's what he wanted more than anything. And he was, he was sort of like a Willie Loman type guy, like tortured by his inability to make it big. Um, and so anyway, so I got into Columbia. I was a wrestler, got into Columbia sort of because I had gotten on the wrestling roster and um and then you know kind of got into all this uh trouble at college like i sort of i had this idea of what college was going to be like in terms of you know i wanted to kind of reinvent myself as this super cool guy who was really you know popular and a ladies man and none of that came to pass and what did what did come to pass was like total loneliness and depression which ended up in like drugs and you know, of like a 2.0 GPA and getting kicked off the wrestling team and getting kicked off, um, getting kicked out of school for a burglary. Um, and so anyways, so then I went out to San Francisco and got these, got this internet job. It was during 1999 and 2000 and the sort of dot-com boom was taking off and I got this great job and, um, I ended up actually messing up that job too. But the reason I tell you about that job was because when I applied to wall street and all these, you know, all these kind of companies come and recruit on Columbia's campus, I like kind of put on my resume, this thing that was like, look, my grades might not be good, but I have have all this business experience, including this awesome internet company that I was a big deal in, um, you know, leaving out the fact that I had been fired for getting in a fight in the middle of the office. Um, and, and so that's kind of what led me on to wall street. Wow. So, you know, I, I, I want to go back to the beginning of this. There's a, there's a lot of stuff here that, um, you know, really kind of want to take apart and tear apart. Uh, 
you know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned having this sort of set idea of what you wanted your life to look like when you got to college, and I can completely relate. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing is that it seems like it, it sent you into sort of a downward spiral almost, and I'm really curious. I want to do a, a bit more digging here. I think that we all have these things that we feel inadequate about, uh, you know, whether it, it be money, whether it be, you know, sort of status, um, whether it be how we're perceived by the world around us, because I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. And I'm wondering, you know, one, how you kind of overcame all of that. Uh, and then sort of two, you know, how do you, how do you keep it from becoming this self-destructive path? Because I see this over and over again. I mean, I've seen, you know, it, it's interesting. I almost, it seems, it seems like you have to destroy yourself in order to build yourself. Uh, from- uh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely true for me. And like, you know, let me just say like from, you know, from almost as early as I can imagine, I was always, I was never sort of myself. I was always trying to pretend to be the kind of guy that I thought was sort of super awesome. So, you know, in in high school, that meant like trying to like lean on rails in the way that the cool kids did and kind of hold my cigarette in the way that they did. And I was always just like, I never really had a sense of me. I had a sense of like an image of who I wanted to be and I was trying to kind of live up to that. And so that sort of led to all these different reinventions. You know, in high school, I sort of became a tough guy and then in college, I was trying to be really popular. And, you know, as you sort of point out, like it never worked. You know, first of all, I was never authentic, right? So I think people always... Well, my guess is, you know, I've never been one of the kind of people that, you know, people just love. Like, I think people can like read that on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and I think that in a sense, like Wall Street was sort of like really about that, at least in my dreams of what Wall Street would be. It was like, you know, in high school, what's super cool is being a quarterback of the football team. But in adulthood, what's super cool is being a really rich guy with a lot of, with a big job, you mm-hmm. know? And so that's sort of why I headed to Wall Street. Um, but then, and whether this is like, you know, whether this is a chicken or egg problem, but like, you know, I, I think because I had this like total dissonance and like sort of lack of authenticity, I was forever getting drunk Mm -hmm. because, you know, getting drunk was the only time in my life that I could sort of feel like I was me. You know, I, all my inhibitions were gone. I was no longer acting. I was just out there sort of being myself. And of course that worked for a while until it came kind of crashing down. And for me, and this goes to what you were saying about hitting like sort of you have to destroy yourself is, you know, three weeks after I started my first wall street internship, I was dating this girl that was like so far and above beyond sort of what I thought I could get in a woman, mm-hmm. which is how I thought about it. And she broke up with me and it was that sort of devastation of that sort of first love breakup was what sort of led me to sort of start kind of, I don't know how to put it, like choosing a different path. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to this idea of um, the sense of me, you know, like you had no sense of yourself. And I I think we lose that, you know, I I mean, I think everybody has it as a child, but then you have all these influences, you know, like you said, your dad loved the idea that you wanted to be rich and that just made him smile. You know, I mean, how do we get back to that? I mean, how do we uncover all the crap that we've, you know, used to shield ourselves from what people will think of the real version of us? I mean, I think there's so much fear associated with all of that. 
Dude, I mean, first of all, I, I couldn't agree more. And second of all, I think what you're touching on is like actually this like a bigger sort of idea than I don't know, like one can contemplate. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I think we are. I think we're born this like whole you know, sort of perfect being that is sort of in touch with who we are and what our purpose is and our sort of humanness. And then, and I think this goes for almost everybody in our culture, somewhere along the way, we get broken, that connection to ourselves and to our purpose gets severed. And I think it's usually by sort of what you're talking about, you know, people injecting their fear into you, you know, like my dad was terrified about the future. And my dad sort of saw the world as this like dark, scary place. And so pretty soon he started teaching me that the world is a dark, scary place. And, you know, you know, I sort of came into the world, I believe, sort of knowing that I was valuable. And then through a thousand different ways was treated in such a way as to be like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not inherently valuable. Maybe I actually have to achieve something in order to be valuable. Mm -hmm. And that is like, I believe that's the sort of bedrock belief of our culture. And so by the time, you know, you get to be 18 or 19, then you no longer believe that you're sort of inherently valuable, but you're sort of looking for all these other things on the outside to, you know, fill the hole that has been created inside. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really interesting point. You know, my business partner, Greg Hartle, and I were having a discussion the other day, and he said, you know, because we've had a steady stream of some pretty interesting successes, you know, with a book hitting the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, a conference that sold out, but, you know, suddenly my confidence got a bit shaken. And he said, he said well, he said, listen, he said, you can't have confidence based on something external that is happening in your life. He said, that's actually fake confidence. It's not real. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, I think that the the question for me becomes when you say that is is how do we fill that hole? I mean, if 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 if, if we've constantly looked for external accolades and and you know, it's funny because I know this on a level. I've even written about it in my book that these external accolades they are often the byproduct of an internal sort of shift mentally. And I'm really curious, uh, you know, how we start to make that shift or how you did. Well, look, I mean, you know, the thing for me, right, was like. These things I'm talking about of like, you know, believing that I was worthless and believing that achievement is, you know, uh, the marker of success. Like I was just – I didn't know that I believed that. Mm -hmm. That That's just sort of who I was, how I thought about the world. And what happened when I first started on Wall Street is I got dumped by this girl and because I was so sort of devastated that I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep and like I was in the middle of this internship and I couldn't go into work because I was so – you know, bursting into tears all the time. And so I called this woman who my girlfriend and I had seen together as a couples counselor years before. Mm -hmm. And she was this like, I mean, if you can imagine like the least likely person that I would ever sort of talk to, I was this kind of like Ivy League Wall Street guy intent on success. And this woman was a uh, Native American spiritual counselor who lived in Santa Monica and didn't have any psychiatry or psychology degrees. She was just like, she, I mean, she said she had some degrees, but I had never heard of them. And she was just like, I'm a spiritual teacher. And I was like, what is that? You know, what are you talking about? But because I was so broken and I didn't have the phone number of any other counselor, I called her and what we started doing is like, you know, she started like we helped, she helped me process the breakup and get over that. But then she started getting into what I was talking about earlier, which is like, what, 
what are the core beliefs that you have about your life? And I, I, you know, it's not like she said it in that language and this took me years and years to figure out, Mm -hmm. but I came to see that these were these beliefs that like, I did believe that except that, that success equaled achievement. And I did believe that I was worthless unless I made a lot of money and was sort of famous and sort of with her sort of influence, I started to really question those beliefs. And so you ask like what you have to do. And I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I I think it's like, I think it's honestly like, you know, Neo in the matrix, you know, taking the blue pill. And I think that you have to first see the rules that you're living by and then transcend them and how you transcend them, at least how I transcended them was like, you know, marginal improvements on a daily basis of like changing the, the kind of synaptical structures of how I thought about things in the world. Mm-hmm. And so literally what I mean, like the best example I have of that is me like literally sitting, you know, lying in bed at night with my eyes closed saying, I am enough. You know, I have, and it sounds so ridiculous. And yet, you know what my truthful, like what it, what it, what it really, what it usually says in my head is it says, you're not enough. You better get to work. You haven't achieved it. You have, you have to go harder. You have to make more money and blah, blah, blah. And so like, and that still comes back, you know, it's like so much less than it was, Mm -hmm. but what it, what it used to feel like was that I was living my life from a complete deficit. And that if I reached all, if I reached Bill Gates level, Barack Obama level, it wasn't like that would be all surplus. Like to me, that would almost be like, okay, you finally made it back to even. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so for me, it was about shifting that to be like, okay, if we start from a completely opposite belief and the opposite belief is I am enough, I don't have to do anything to be valuable. And in fact, no matter what I do, I will never be as, as valuable as I am right at this moment. And then the, then the world, you know, when I can shift into that mindset, which is not all that easy, mm-hmm. but when I can, then all of a sudden life looks like an adventure. It looks fun. All these things that I'm working on are joyous projects and gifts to the world, as opposed to, you know, what I've been trained to believe they are is like deadlines for me to just break even. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's such a it's such an interesting way to look at all of this. I mean, I, I it's funny because I can kind of relate to you know I, I feel like I'm going through what you're talking about to some degree because we've it, we suddenly reached a lot of the goals that I had set for for many years, and you know our our former guest, Sean Acor, he had said, he said, what happens when that, when that goes on is that your brain changes the goalpost for what success looks like each time you achieve something. Every time. I know. It's like, it's, it's honestly, it's like, I, no matter how much I have worked on this and, and, and I mean, like I've been seeing this counselor still for 12 years now, every Mm -hmm. week, once or twice a week, talking about this stuff, working on it myself. And still, you know, for the last four years, I was focused on getting a book published. And I really believed that as soon as I got that book deal, everything would be okay. And literally two days after that deal was signed, I was completely on to like my next speech that I have to give. And that's got to be enough. And like, I I barely even remember that the book was a big deal for me to get done. Mm -hmm. Funny you say that. I I, I kind of was the exact same thing about uh, our event, which had been, you know, the greatest creative project of my life. And I I realized I was like, wow, I didn't take enough time to just savor how awesome it was. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Well, let me ask you, man, it sounds like you left Wall Street quite some time ago. And I remember, you know, that what 
what got me was the op-ed piece. I mean, it sounds like it before the realization and before leaving Wall Street was still quite a journey. I mean, it seems like you didn't leave and you you got to this point because I remember reading that article thinking, wow, like this guy made a lot of money and, uh, you know, I, you know, your life would be perfect and all set right after that. Yeah, well, so, well, first of all, I made less money than people think, which I sort of like chuckle about. Like, all, all the Wall Street guys would call my friends and be like, "Man, this guy made it so easy for you to say with this amount of money, blah blah blah." And my friends would turn to them and be like, "Well, actually, you have way more money than Sam does, mm-hmm. you know." And so, I guess not to be—I mean, this is always a dicey subject because I have way more money than most people, but at the same time, based on what people thought about that article, I have way less money. Sure. Um, but the whole thing, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, you know, walking – people think about money, right, as it's as if it's some like objective thing, right, mm-hmm. or that it's something that you use in order to purchase resources for yourself. But I – in my belief, I would say that 97 percent of money is actually all the kind of projections and fears that we – and hopes that we put on our lives sort of put onto this – you know, little piece of paper effectively that has nothing to do with whether we can eat or not. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a long way of saying that like, man, my journey with money, like my, whether I have, you know, whatever amount of money I have in the bank, my journey with all this stuff and achievement and whatever is this like lifelong thing that I get better and better at. And I still struggle every single day with. Hmm. You know, it, it's well. I love that you brought up that it is a journey. I mean, I think that that's that's kind of the common story I find with anybody here. It's not that you reach some point of achievement and you get to sit back and do nothing. Uh, kind of as we we've both realized, you your your goalpost changes when you achieve something, uh, which is unfortunate in a lot of ways. But you know, w- one of the things that that I want to talk about uh, in quite a bit of detail is is sort of the psychology of addiction to all of this because that was what really intrigued me about the article was that this actual sort of pursuit of the path um, just became an addiction for you. Uh, and I'm really curious, uh, you know, one, I'd like to do a, a deeper dive into the journey and even some of the really dark parts of where it's taken you. Well, look, man, like, you know, we can talk about, uh, we can really, I'm an open book. We can really talk about whatever you want. Like as far as, I guess what my point is though, is that we have been talking about addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is like, this feel like if you think about what it feels like to be an addict, right? Then they are not right until they get their hit. But then as soon as they get that hit, it's not as much as they wanted and they want more. And so they feel like they're not going to be right until they get the next hit. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I felt about my bonuses on Wall Street. But that's also how I felt about getting my book published. And it sounds like that's how you felt about getting your book po- or your conference done as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's the whole thing, which is like, it's hard to fathom the amount of like – like I think the reason people connected with this idea of an addiction is because it all of a sudden, I don't know, changed the paradigm from like looking at people who are successful as like, you know, you know, world you know, life winners who are going out and, and claiming what is their sort of like talent and, and birthright you know, due to them and more like what it actually feels like, which is like, it's people trying to make up from this deficit that is like deep inside them, which Mm -hmm. is sort of what I think addiction is. You know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because when we, when we look at addiction or when we typically think of addiction, uh, we don't think of people who are successful as being addicts. 
We think of people who have drug problems. We think of people who have alcohol problems uh, or psychological issues. But somebody who's successful very rarely comes to your mind as, hey, this person has a serious addiction. I know. I mean, that's the whole thing. I, I think that's one of the reasons that that article went so crazy is it's like such a bizarre – like it's – it you know, our pursuit of success so clearly looks like addiction, although because – as you put it, we like we we loud that success, and we we put that as the aspiration for not just ourselves, but for anybody in the culture. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it just you know we just sort of ignore the fact that wow, it actually really does look and feel exactly like an addiction. And that's the thing is like all these happiness guys will tell you, and I'll tell you like, you know, when I was on Wall Street, like you know. If there was a lot of things that felt good, you know, like it felt good to, you know, be able to call a broker and go to a World Series game, you mm-hmm. know, and not even think about it and call, you know, this person and go to Nobu, you know, and not even think about it. But at the same time, like the flash of um, positive feeling I got from that was so minuscule compared to this sort of like overwhelming tidal wave inside me of like, you know, need and desperation that is sort of, that I think is the same thing that you and I are talking about, which is like this need for success and this need to be important, Mm -hmm. you know, which is like, how would the world look different if we all just sort of understood that we were all inherently valuable and important and didn't need to do anything? You know, it's a, it's an interest, especially in the world we live in today, right? I mean, we have, there's an, it's become very easy to be addicted to validation. I mean, social media definitely helps amplify that. Totally. You know, cause I, mean, I always jokingly say, I'm like, everybody's life looks more epic than yours does when you're online. Really? And as an aside on that, like I struggle, like, because it's like, what do you post? You know, like I only, I sort of post when something good happens to me, but yeah. I don't have the, but I don't have the relationship with social media. That's like. You know, I'll never put on Facebook, oh, man, I had a really depressing day today. And it's, <laughs> I'm really not trying to curate this thing. I just feel like it's, like, solipsistic to post that. Yeah. But then it, it just feeds into this beast that you're talking about, which is, like, my wife literally gets depressed every time she goes to Facebook. And she'll come to me and be like, we should do something else and we need to do more of this. And I'll be like, God, have you been looking at Facebook again? <laughs> Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, there's, there's no question that there, that addiction to validation is, is actually a very, very, uh, it's tricky, right? So let's, let's, let's actually break down kind of, so, I mean, obviously there came to be a breaking point for you. Um, and I'm not sure if it was the girlfriend, but uh, I mean, cause it, it sounded like there were several years. Look, the, three, the, the, the girlfriend was the beginning, okay. right? That okay. was the big, like I had been raised with this consciousness that said all these things that we're talking about, that success equals money and power and prestige. And the more of that you get, the better you are. And the more of that you get, the more valuable your life is. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until this girlfriend dumped me and like caused me enough pain that I was like willing to accept new information that came in the form of this spiritual counselor. And so all of a sudden I'm like living, you know, for the next, you know, I was on wall street for eight years and, you know, it was like, it was almost like I had two paths, right? One was my wall street path, which was like what I had set out to do from the beginning. And I was just trying to climb the corporate ladder and I was going out to dinner every night with clients. And I was like, I was obsessed with, you know, people respecting me in the industry and how much money I was going to get paid and whether or not this was the right bonus offer and blah, blah, blah. But then I'd come home at night 
And I would do this spiritual work. Like I'd literally like meditate and write in my journal. And most importantly, like just talk to this woman who, whose beliefs came from, you know, a native American belief system that is really the exact opposite of ours. It really is this belief system that says everybody's valuable and everybody though, everybody has something unique and important to contribute and and their job in life is to find out what that is. But the thing that you know for sure is that everybody's contribution is equally important. Mm-hmm. And it was so sort of crazy to me. And so, you know, at first I would sort of like dismiss her but still talk to her and I would be focused on Wall Street. And then say three or four years into Wall Street, I'd be like, well, Wall Street is really important to me. But also what she's saying is sort of making sense. And then I got to the point where I was like seven years into Wall Street where – what she was saying and that way of looking at the world that said everybody's valuable, that you don't need to achieve more to be successful, that started to really make sense to me. And that was right around the time that the market crashed. So you were just graduating business school mm-hmm. and we were sort of watching all these things melt down. And it was this really like, you know, crazy time in Wall Street for me because it was like all of a sudden everybody's masks were pulled off. You know, it was like, first of all, you know, people that you thought were sort of masters of the universe and so great at their jobs, all of a sudden were like, hey, you, you know, we couldn't have seen this coming. It was impossible to see this coming. And you're like, okay, well, that's weird because you're my hero and you're sort of saying that you couldn't have seen this coming. But isn't that sort of our job to see it coming? But then the second thing was like, you know, people started like, People got really scared. And so, for example, I had one boss that went out and bought a gun and he bought a gun because guys on Wall Street were fearful that like the masses were going to revolt. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and so like it was just this time where I was like watching everything happen on Wall Street and how defensive and um, crazed Wall Street got about sort of losing their position and their power and their wealth. And and then I went into this meeting that I wrote about in that New York Times article where my billionaire boss said when talking about the hedge fund regulations being proposed by Congress, he said, you know, I, I, I don't have the brain capacity to think about what's good for the system as a whole. I can only think about what's good for us and our company. And I, I, I promise you it wasn't like I sat in like moral judgment of him. But that was the moment where I saw like, oh, you know what? This isn't right. You know, like I, you know, people portray Wall Street folks as being evil. They see the wolf of Wall Street and these guys are like criminals and depraved and whatever. But Wall Street's not like that, right? Like Wall Street is people, you know, just like you and me who happen to get a job at Goldman Sachs and now trade mortgage bonds for a living. And they don't understand how how that, you know, they're not making, you know, these like criminal decisions that. Uh, that that people think that they should be put in jail. They're actually just doing their job, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was doing. And then all of a sudden, my billionaire boss said that, and I was like, oh, I see it now. Like, I see it now. Like, I am in my desperate search to fill this hole in my soul with money and success. I am participating in a structure th- that is deeply oppressive to everybody who's not part of the in crowd of Ivy League elites, you know, who work on Wall Street. And I'm just all I'm trying to do is get 
to the best lifeboat so that I can sort of feel safe. And I saw this billionaire and he was 20 years ahead of me and he had literally over a billion dollars and he was still doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? Like life's got to be about more than that. It cannot be just about self-seeking so that we can protect ourselves with money. It's got to be about something deeper and more meaningful. Hmm. I love that. Um, so a couple of other things that, that come from this, you know, it, it to me, the, the, one of the more fascinating things is, is the, the dichotomy of sort of two paths going on at the same time, both, which are wildly different, uh, you know, sort of the wall street path and the spiritual path. And I, I'm wondering, you know, if you're conflicted at times throughout this entire journey and, and, um, you know, how you dealt with those conflicts, because I think that, you know, the idea of spending your life doing something with meaning and purpose may be the the underlying theme of this show, uh, given everybody that we profiled here. And yet there's also reality for people to deal with, because I can tell you a lot of people who are listening to this would be like, you know what? I'm like, I'd take the Wall Street job and the million, you know, million dollars and, uh, you know, take it all the way to the bank and, and all the things you talked about, like you said, that make you feel good, um, I think also make you feel secure. I'm just curious, you know, one, how you handle the dichotomy and then what do you think it is that separates the people who finally can sort of see the light and say, you know what, I'm going to go down the path that is the one that's deep and meaningful and fulfilling from the ones who don't and just keep grinding it out? You know I mean, I, I think that's all like, like super fascinating. Like the one thing that I will say is like I got an email today from a, a college kid and I've been getting a ton of emails from college kids that are effectively saying what you're saying, which is like, you know, they see the sort of like dichotomous path, right? They can, you know, they see Wall Street and they say, you know, gosh, I don't want to get sucked into the money and I think there's more to life than that. But at the same time, that money sure looks good. And maybe I'll do that for 10 or 15 years, get a little bit of money, and then do something else. And I, my response is not that it's an easy choice and that you should go join a nonprofit. It's like that this is a really difficult choice for sure. But the one thing that I will say is that like when I was about to quit Wall Street, and I, it was like the hardest, literally the hardest decision that I'd ever made. And I was like, you know, with my twin brother one day and I said to him, like, I was just distraught because I could see this line of like million dollar bonuses stretching out in front of me as far as I could see. And I knew that if I stayed on this career path, I could have everything that I ever wanted, this big house, big car, second house in Sun Valley. You know, I could be important. I could be a you know leader guy profiled in the Wall Street Journal or whatever. And what else was there going to be? What was I leaving for? And my brother said, you know, you're going to look back in 10 years and thank God for the fact that you left because of everything that you've created since then. Mm -hmm. And I guess the point I'm making is like, I think that people, they just see the path ahead and they think that's all there is. And they know that there's another path that they can take, but because they can't see what's down that path, they sort of discount it very heavily. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But, but like I've like been, you know, I'm four years from leaving, um, you know, Wall Street and, you know, I've written that New York Times article and I wrote a book and I started grocery ships and I wrote to this kid and I said, look, you know, so, you know, imagine that in those four years, I probably could have made $10 million in bonuses. And so I'm not saying it is so obvious that writing a book and, you know, starting a nonprofit is way better than making $10 million. I'm just saying, I mean, it is for me and I would do it again in a heartbeat. But mm -hmm. I, what, I, what I am saying is that like something came that I could never have seen. And those, 
things that came were profoundly more illustrative of who I am as a person than whether I could have made $10 million. You know, it's, it's really interesting you say that. Cause I, I think about, uh, I mean, you know, like we'd said, I graduated business school and I had a very set idea of what post business school life was supposed to be, be like, you know, the $90,000 job, at least, uh, you know, nice office and commute to work every day and buying a bunch of things that I probably don't need. Uh, but living very comfortably, and I think maybe the most uh, revealing thing that you said was that you can't see what's down that path, and that's why people don't choose it. But that's also one of the things that makes it so fulfilling. That's where you get to do things that are deeply meaningful uh, because you get to actually shape what's on that path even though you can't see it. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like we undervalue that path, but then we also overvalue the other path. And that's what, like you said, that there was probably people listening to this that would say like, yeah, well, I take the money and, you know, whatever. And, and, and I know that people believe that, right? And that's why – and then imagine like – think about all the people that are rich and successful, right? that, you know, have their Bentleys and have a house in Bel Air. And, you know, I would bet – that there is a large percentage of those people that still feel lost and they still feel trapped and empty, but they're in this sort of like terrible bind, right? Because the world thinks that they're successful. And so to admit that they still feel upset, that they don't feel happy is to sort of discount their own success. And every now and again, we see evidence of this, right? We see Philip Seymour Hoffman still using heroin. We still, we see the guy from Wedding Crashers trying to commit suicide. You know, like it's clear that money and success and power doesn't fix everything. And we all sort of pay lip service to it. And then we say just what you said your listeners would say. But, you know, if I could make a million dollars, I would. Mm -hmm. And so that's another reason I think that my article went sort of so crazy is because I was really like saying like, I don't know, man. I'm not saying like, you know, somebody finally said it. I'm just saying that I was out there and saying, look, this is all bullshit. Like you guys think that this life is so awesome and successful. And yeah, there are some really cool things about it. And yet here I am at 30 years old making a million dollars a year, racked with envy and jealousy about the guys next to me making $10 million. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like, I don't know. I don't think I was any happier then than I was before I started making a million dollars. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's actually a, a really interesting way of looking at it. So let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, and, and let's talk about kind of what happened after you left and, and what you've been up to since, uh, you know, you mentioned the book and like I said, we found you via the, the New York times article. Uh, because I think that's the, you know, that's the thing that, that, that leap is one of those sort of transformative moments for people. And, uh, I'm very curious about yours. I mean, did you have an idea of where it was going to lead or was it just, you know what, I'm done with this? I know it was like, I had no idea what I was going to do. And it was really like scary. And like, you know, while I was leaving, people would tell me all these stats. They'd be like, you know, people, when people retire and they leave their jobs, then three years later, they're often dead, you know, like, you know, and I'd be like, ah, oh, shit. And then, you know, I'd think about like, you know, I think about how crazy it was that the thing that I was really most afraid of was, was what I most wanted, you know, which was to not have anything to do every day to like 
choose what I wanted to do during a day. Mm -hmm. And I was equally excited about that and terrified. And in the beginning, it was really hard. Like, you know, at first I started like surfing and I'd go see movies and read books. And I was like, okay, this is great. You know, I don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. But then after a while, I just felt that old sort of feeling uh, that you and me have talked about of like, God, you're not doing enough. You know, life is passing you by. You know, um, I'd read in the paper about guys that I used to know getting, you know, promoted to these jobs. And I'd be like, oh, my God, you haven't done anything in six months. You like and it was just this like really hard process of like. Because you know what? I wasn't just leaving Wall Street. I was like really trying to symbolically leave behind a belief system. Mm-hmm. And that is that belief system is so deeply entrenched in me that it's like, you know, they say that every time like, you know, when whenever you, you, you see a book every couple of years from people that like interview people are dying about their like biggest regrets. And it's mm-hmm. always it's always that people work too much. You know? And so we have these lives where we work so much and then we get to be eighty and then we go, Oh, I wish I could have gone back. I wish I, you know, I would have had more time. And I was actually doing that in my early thirties and it was really terrifying. It was really hard. And then what happened over time, and I'm sure you sort of had this experience in your journey is like, you know, you make one decision and, you know, I started going and, you know, to sort of fill my time and try to find some meaning. I started going and talking in jails and talking about, um, you know, getting sober and trying to live a different kind of life than the one I was trying – that I used to live. And and that led me to sort of see the world in a different way and kind of understand that like, you know, that, that, that you know, I had been from the top on Wall Street, which was like in a, in a, in a meeting with billionaires. And now I was at the bottom with prisoners in a jail. And I just started to like see the, you know, my perspective just began to widen and I started to see, you know, things that I couldn't see when I was on Wall Street. And that led me to start writing a book and that led me to also start this nonprofit. Wow. You know, there's, there's a couple of things you said there. Uh, you know, what, what's, what's really interesting is that you can go down the second path and you can become a victim of the same belief system. Is, is what I've realized as, as I heard you say that and talk about it, uh, because it can become a similar sort of trap, you know, where you're watching people publish books, you're watching people accomplish all these things. Totally. Uh, but the other thing you said was that this was about leaving behind a deeply entrenched belief system. And I think that's such a fundamental key to making changes in our lives. Uh, and I'm curious you know, if we're to really look at that and say, you know, I want to leave behind a deeply entrenched belief system, how we do it. Therapy. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I really believe that's true. Like, I mean, look at, 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 and this may be even a little controversial or maybe not, I don't know, but like in the end of the day, like I had, my parents were not the worst people in the world by any means. And they were like good in so many ways and yet they had their problems, right? Like my dad was a super rageful guy and he would just lose it. And when he lost it, it was like deeply terrifying. And he was also like, you know, he, he was so sort of stuck in his own race for success and him and my mom had a rough marriage. And so he was sort of checked out and my mom was also super checked out too. And she would always like, you know, I would always be the last one picked up from, you know, baseball practice and just like standing on the field, like kicking the dirt 
you know what I mean, in the dark waiting for my mom. And I don't mean like at all to play like a pity card. I'm just saying that there was like a lot of ways that like I sort of like learned like that, that I was worthless as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so in order to change and then – and what do you do if you're worthless, right? If you feel worthless, then – or at least what I did is I tried to find these other things that would prove that I was worthwhile. And by the way, I still do that. And I think that you made like a really good point, which is like, I think it's a huge improvement that I left wall street and started writing a book. And, but, but at the same time, even in the process of writing that book, some days I'd be doing it. And I can say this honestly, some days I'd be doing it because I wanted to share something with the world and perhaps help a few people and give a gift to the world. And some days I was doing it because I wanted to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was just you know, the same Wall Street mindset just put on a different profession that was maybe marginally better but still the same. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm saying is like my, 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 my – task today is the same as it was the day I left Wall Street, which is to continually build up this sense of core self-worth that has nothing to do with achievement and enough so that I can stop trying to be this perfect guy that tries to impress the world. And, you know, I have – my wife and I had had our first child two months ago and we have this baby girl and I like – I'm – I'm sort of like I'm proud of a lot of things that I've done in my life and I'm proud of leaving Wall Street and I'm proud of all this change that I've made in my life. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I look at her and I know that I am not as far along as I want to be. Like I want to teach her from the beginning that she is valuable, that she doesn't need to do anything, that she will be loved by me and by her mom no matter what she does. And yet I know that the that's the, the way you end up teaching your kids is by what you do. Mm-hmm. And I still wake up some days and I feel like I'm not enough. And I think, think well, maybe when this grocery ship's nonprofit is a, is a million dollar a year nonprofit, then I'll be enough. Or maybe when this book hits the bestseller list and I become a worldwide speaker, then I'll be enough. And I know like I'm going to work on that every day of my life and try to communicate to her that she's valuable, but I still don't, you know, maybe there's probably no, you know, goal there like there's no end point to this journey Mm -hmm. but i know that i'm still going to be i know that she's going to see me and be like huh dad sometimes doesn't believe that he's enough yeah it's it's funny you say that uh yeah i mean there are days when i wake up and i do this work because i feel it's world changing and somebody listening is going to be incredibly moved by it and uh you know i get to put a ripple out into the world that might change somebody's life in some meaningful way and there are plenty of days when I wake up and think I want to be validated, you know, and that's, that's why I, you know, that's why I'm behind the mic and that's why I'm excited that thousands of people listen because it gives me a sense of validation. And that's, that's, that's a troubling realization to come to, uh, but also an important one. I think it's, it's having the self-awareness to know that you're still wavering between those two paths. And I, you know, I think that all of us do that to some degree. No, absolutely. And it's just like, the more that we can stay conscious of the, that fact, then the less like, I don't know, dangerous we become, you know, it's like, it's just, it's more humble that way to, to remember that we're never fixed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me briefly uh, about what grocery ships is so our, our listeners can, you know, learn a little bit more about what you've been up to and, and, you know, kind of where you're taking this journey next. Sure. Well, like, you know, 
I've, I've sort of struggled with food all my life. My family was sort of, um, obese and I have, you know, family members that have struggled with that. And I was like a heavy kid. Um, and so like, I was always sort of like aware of food and health and, um, and, you know, over the years kind of got into nutrition and whatever. But then we watched, my wife and I watched this movie called The Place at the Table that was about hunger in America. And it was sort of the same realization that I had at the at the jail, which was sort of like, God, you know, it, it feels hard for me to be like, make it in the world in some sense. And yet, you know, five miles from where I live, there are these families that live in food deserts where they can't buy produce. And there's, you know, a disproportionate amount of fast food restaurants. And, you know, the grocery stores are like slammed with like, like in Westwood, you walk into a Whole Foods and there's all this produce. And in South Central LA, you walk into a food for less and there's not a lot of produce, but there's a lot of pies, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I just started to like kind of get a sense of like, for lack of a better word, like how tough it is for some people, you know? And so over the past couple of years, my wife and I created this program called Grocery Ships, which is it's a play on words. It's like scholarships for groceries. And so we find families in South LA that are, that want to get healthy amidst a toxic food culture. And we provide them 10 families at a time, go through a six month program that consists mainly of weekly meetings, um, where the first of the two hour meeting, the first hour is focused on kind of nutrition education and, and not like the sort of you know, blame the victim, usual nutrition information. That's sort of like, you guys need to be eating smaller portions, but more like, more like the stuff, frankly, that came out in food Inc and forks over knives and stuff about like how messed up the food system is and how, if you sort of eat like, you know, quote unquote normal, Mm -hmm. that just leads to all these sort of diseases and overweight and pain and whatever. And so we teach them that. But then the second half hour is really like a support group where it's like, you know, honestly, it's this beautiful space where, you know, families are are sharing about their struggles with health and um, family in the midst of, you know, a really difficult environment. And um, yeah, it's really this, uh, it's really this idea about like, you know, food being this like really, you know, important sort of critical thing to everybody's life, but also this like, you know, a chance to sort of like the beginning of this step towards, you know, a better sense of value for yourself and your family. Hmm. I love it. Well, Sam, this has been uh, just really, really fascinating as I expected it would be. Uh, so I, I want to wrap with one final question. Uh, you know, our show is called the unmistakable creative, and, and this is kind of how we close everything with everybody. What is it, uh, you know, that you think based on your experience and your life and everything that you've gone through that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That makes something, you know, I think it's like, I think the simple answer is authenticity and it also goes with, with creativity in a sense, which is like why I like that you guys paired that word. And what I mean is this, like, you know, when I was on wall street, like you could see that path ahead. Right. And you know, there was ups and downs and I'd get one, a bonus that wasn't that good that one year and a better bonus the next year. And I thought that was like a lot of risk, but really I could see the path and I knew that my job was to come in and trade distressed bonds. And if I did that well, I'd get to be up here. But then this path I'm on now where it's undefined and it's all about me sort of making the choice that is best for myself or my vision, it is so much more terrifying 
You know, there is so much more fear and and not knowing what to do and uh, panic that I'm doing it wrong. And to me, that is what sort of like creativity is. And I've like gotten a lot better with like learning how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But I believe that once like the people that are willing to face that fear and really put themselves out there, not in the sort of standard way, but in the way that is unique and true to their own heart, um, you know, then they can create things that have never existed in the world before. And I think that we all have within us the ability and the potential to create something that has never existed and will never exist again. And, you know, the courage to do that and the fortitude to do that is what I think, you know, leads to people becoming unmistakable. Awesome. I love it. Well, Sam, uh, as I said, this has been just amazing, uh, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and your story with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. Well, thank you so much for your time, and it was really a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to The Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. 
The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.